Joe and Big Al uncover social security secrets on the latest episode of the Your Money, Your Wealth TV show. Watch it online at yourmoneyyourwealth.com and download our free social security handbook while you're there. Now, today on the Your Money, Your Wealth podcast, Forbes contributor, Kitsis.com director of advisor education and CEO of Blueprint Wealth Alliance, Jeffrey Levine, explains the opportunities and concerns presented by President Donald Trump's executive order relating to multiple employer retirement plans and required minimum distributions. Now, what does this all mean for you? Jeff also tells us how the IRS is throwing salt in the state and local tax deduction limit wound. Plus, you asked and Joe and Big Al answered. Will contributing to your retirement account lower your taxes and let you keep more take-home pay? And when should you file for Social Security or spousal benefits? Now, here are Joe Anderson, CFP, and Big Al Clopine, CPA. Alan, it's that time of the show, bud. It is. It's definitely my favorite time of the show when we talk to somebody that uh, knows more than us. Which is, way. And in this case, it's way more than us. You know, and you're a CPA, Big Al. You've been a CPA for a long time. Yes, decades. And I guarantee you, our guest knows yeah. way more I've, about taxes than you've ever learned in 30-some-odd years. I don't doubt that. <laughs> <laughs> we got uh, Jeffrey Levine on, and I've been following Jeff for quite a while. Um, and I've learned a lot you think I'm a pretty good IRA guy. Yeah, I do. And it's all because of... Because of, of Jeff. Yeah. Exactly. So I give all that <laughs> now, credit Now to I know him. your secrets. It, it, <laughs> yes. So without further ado, I want to welcome uh, Jeffrey to the show. If you guys go on any longer, I'm going to have to ship a, 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 you know, a case of brandy over. This is, this is quite the introduction. <laughs> <laughs> well, we accept. Yeah. Brandy, tequila, just Pabst Blue Ribbon. I don't care. <laughs> That's He's partial to that. <laughs> Uh, Jeff, well, we got a lot of things um, we want to ask you. We want to pick your brain a little bit. Uh, sure. President Trump just signed a um, an ex- executive order. Thank you, Alan. <laughs> I was going to say a bill, a bi- but no. it, it, it wasn't even close to that. No, not a bill. An executive order to try to maybe help with the retirement crisis that that we hear about. Can you dive in a little bit of some of the changes that that may or may not come down the pipe here with um, some changes in the executive order there? Sure. So the executive order really focuses on two things after kind of going through what you already talked about, the current retirement crisis. It you know, talks about that we don't have enough access to retirement plans today, uh, citing a Pew uh, charitable research study where roughly a quarter of workers today, uh, full-time workers, are without access to a plan. And if you add in part-time workers, that goes up to about a third. So many workers today, even though they're employed, don't have access to something like a 401k, a 403b, or some other type of plan where they would be able to save substantial amounts of money more than, let's say, just your typical IRA or uh, Roth IRA contribution of $5,500 per year or $6,500 if you're 50 or over. So the, uh, the two areas that are focused on are, one, an expansion of access to something called a MEP, an M-E-P, which is short for Multiple Employer Retirement Plan, and we'll talk about that in just a second. And the other is a change in the required minimum distribution rules. So we want to start with the, the first of those, the expansion of the MEP. Uh, a MEP, again, is a multiple employer retirement plan. And, and in short, uh, to simplify it, what it really is, is it's a group of two or more unrelated employers that kind of pool their resources together and have one broad plan. And obviously, the idea here is like going to Costco or a BJ's or one of those big warehouses to buy stuff. You get it cheaper, typically, because you buy in bulk. Same thing here with retirement plans, right? If you bring together two participants and it's a small business or even five or ten, 
that's a small amount of individuals to focus a plan for. If we can bring together, though, 100 companies that each have five individuals, the idea is, with MEPS at least, that we can get economies of scale and drive down prices. Now, how much that will actually uh, bear out in the future, we'll see. There are MEPS today, uh, but there are a couple of barriers to why they haven't taken off. And one of the big ones is a Department of Labor uh, position that was taken up a few years ago under the Obama administration that is uh, referred to sometimes as the nexus rule or the connection rule. And what it says is in order for the Department of Labor to treat a MEP as a single plan, which is the goal here, we want it to be treated as a single plan, you have to have some connection amongst the businesses, so a shared trade group or something like that. And the executive order really looks to expand access, as well as some other bills that have been put forth, such as the uh, Retirement Enhancement and Savings Act earlier this year, the RESA bill. Uh, that was kind of proposed again this year, and it would eliminate a lot of that nexus rule. So you might have a employer that is a, a law firm pooling together resources with a contractor, with a doctor's office, with, uh, you know, completely unrelated professions. And again, that would just, the theory is, is that would allow groups to band together and create further economies of scale and drive down prices. So that's the first element. And that would really change the 401k marketplace uh, dramatically if that, if that does come to pass. We could see all sorts of interesting changes happening there. The, uh, the second aspect of that uh, executive order was to revisit the distribution rules under the, uh, under the required minimum distribution rules that we have today. Now, currently, beginning at 70 and a half, individuals need to begin taking money out of their IRAs and typically also their retirement plans like 401ks, 403bs, etc., though there are some exceptions on that side. And when they start to take the money out, there's a percentage that they have to take out each year. It generally starts at about 3.65% and goes up from there. And each year, it's a little bit more, it's a little bit more, it's a little bit more. And that's based upon a life expectancy table that the IRS has been using since 2002. Now, over the last 15 years, people are living longer. So the idea here in the executive order is to say, let's take a look at this, let's revisit this, and if people are living longer, let's require them, not force them to take out money uh, faster, but let's require them to take out less each year, potentially, so that they can continue to have those savings uh, to go on you know, for longer in life. And again, whether or not we see that happen, uh, that could be a matter of simple interpretation by the Treasury Department. They could just release new regulations that would not necessarily take new legislation. So I think that's much more likely to happen, although I would posture that I think its impact for a lot of people will be minimal. And the reason why is most people end up using their retirement savings or a substantial portion to live off of. So they're taking that money out anyway. The big benefit, if that happens, will be for the very wealthy and the really good savers because they'll be able to defer RMDs longer and take out less and see less of a tax bill on that retirement savings. So for your listeners out there that have done a great job savings, they've put away 500000 you know, a million dollars in a portfolio, that could be substantially good news for you because could dramatically decrease your tax bill. Yeah, that's interesting is that we look at studies of, you know, the average balance of someone's overall retirement account, 
And when it comes to required distributions, you know, it really only affects the people that have saved a lot of money because, it, you know, Alan, I've seen it, you know, it will blow people up into a lot higher tax bracket because, you know, really good savers are terrible spenders. Uh, so they, mm-hmm. they continue to accumulate these dollars. So this bill basically, I mean, it, it doesn't, you know, 80% of the population kind of blows through their overall retirement. They, they take out way more than probably the minimum, but I think it would really help, um, you know, the, the, the people that have saved a, a lot more. Well, I totally, I totally agree. In fact, there's a really good uh, report out from the um, Employee Benefit Research Institute. just came out uh, last month, I think, in the second week of August on how required minimum distributions actually drive uh, withdrawals from IRAs. In fact, I think that was the actual title of the, uh, of the paper of how, how required minimum distribution rules drive IRA withdrawals. And they talked about you know, precisely that, how people are, are, are taking that money out and, and how much of a role those minimum distribution rules we have today you know, factor into that decision of how much to take out. So let's go back to the uh, multiple, multiple employer plan. And I think the goal there is to reduce cost because you get mm-hmm. you, you get economies of scale, as you mentioned. Is, do you see that actually happening? Is this a good thing, or is it is it is it a major thing? Is it kind of would be a kind of a minor change? How do you see it? So I think it really depends on how the administration would go about implementing that. I have I think there are some real opportunities, and I think that I have some real concerns. So one of the concerns would be is that, uh, you know, we, we allow these MEP plans to have uh, no common nexus, and all of a sudden, you know, Fidelity, Schwab, Vanguard, uh, you know, TD Ameritrade, Pershing, your, your big players in the market, end up with 90% of the business there. And now, because they have so much control over the market, they have better pricing control. Because if you're a business and you start using a, a MEP, it's not such an easy thing to just stop it. You can stop contributions if you want, or stop participating rather inside the MEP. Uh, but the termination or the, the way to end that participation is not the same as it is when you close down your own plan. Typically, if you're a small business and you start a 401k and you decide, you know what, this plan just isn't for us, you terminate the plan. In general, it's considered a distributable event. So you have a scenario now where the individuals inside the plan can take that money, roll it over to their own traditional IRAs or other accounts, et cetera, and you're pretty much absolved of ongoing fiduciary obligation as the employer. You don't have anything to watch anymore. There is no plan. But with a MEP, when you actually terminate your uh, involvement in the MEP, the MEP itself does not necessarily terminate, and so there may not be that distributable event. Employees may still have the monies that they put aside into that plan, stuck in that plan, if you will. And if that's the case, the employer still has ongoing fiduciary obligation and oversight over that MEP. So it it potentially diminishes the value. Uh, There are ways to get around that or to to take multiple steps to try and reduce that from happening, such as the business spinning off their assets into their own plan and then terminating that plan. But you can see here already, we're talking about multiple steps, which means time, which means money for businesses. So that could be the danger. On the bright side, we could see a scenario where individual advisors like yourself are empowered to create their own plans. And now we just have uh, you know, the ABC company 401k or multiple employer retirement plan, that could be tremendous. Uh, we would have a scenario where, you know, you could have thousands of advisors throughout the country 
all having their own plan and creating their own uh, investment lineup and own plan provisions and educating individuals in different ways. So that would just be phenomenal. You know, I, I could see that really improving the retirement sector and driving down costs. And just like today, you know, the increased competition amongst advisors has driven down costs for consumers. I could see that further, uh, you know, being f- uh, further enhanced if we saw those type of multiple employer retirement plan arrangements created. I think this is way more important than extending RMDs, to be honest with you. Yeah, me too. Because if you, you know, you take a look is that, all right, Jeff, you and I are in the same industry and we have the same salary and we work for that same company for 30 years, but you work for a company across the street than I and you have a 401k plan and I do not. At the end of that 30 years, and we're both looking to retire, I guarantee you, and I know we can't guarantee anything in this business, but I would guarantee you, you have way more money saved for retirement than I have, because I'm stuck with an IRA that I have to go set up, find an advisor, or go online, or do some things that I'm not familiar with, versus you can je- check a box and put in 18.5 or 24.5 or whatever the, you know the case may be, depending on the plan, and you know it's automatic, easy savings. If I don't have access to that, I, I'm, not, I'm not prepared because we're just not equipped. Or a lot of individuals are just not equipped to either save or know how to do it or go about doing it because, you know, I guess we spend before we, you know, save for ourselves. So I yeah, think there's something has of, to be done, right? I, I, you know, we're creatures of inertia, right? Uh, if you look at some of the big advances that have been made in savings, a lot of it is due to things like auto-enrollment and auto-escalation of 401k contributions. We're just, uh, it sounds not really nice to say, but we're just lazy. That's really what it comes down to, right? And so the easier we can make it for people to save, the more we can give them access to just say, you know what, you don't have to write a check or do anything. We're just going to take it right out of your saving, you know, right out of your paycheck each month. You don't have to do anything. Um, we're likely to see more people save and more people save in higher amounts. The easier we can make it for people, the more likely that they are to take advantage of those options, for sure. Next week on Your Money, Your Wealth, Joe and Big Al are talking all about rental real estate. Kubert from AbandonedCubicle.com shares the pros and cons of using vacation rentals on his path to fire, that is financial independence, retire early. And the fellas answer your questions about real estate investing, like can it help you reduce taxes in a high-tax state? And how can you minimize capital gains when selling rental property? Then in October, Joe and Big Al will go in-depth on IRAs contributions, mistakes, and more actionable advice to help you retire successfully. Listen and subscribe to the podcast on your smartphone, your device, or your desktop computer for free at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. And enter your email address to subscribe to the podcast newsletter so you don't miss a thing. Now more with Forbes contributor and Kitsis.com director of education, Jeffrey Levine. Let me ask you about another change that just happened uh, late last month, the uh, state and local tax deduction. So we know with the new tax law that now uh, individuals are limited to deducting $10,000 between their state taxes and property taxes. And some of the Mm -hmm. high-cost states like California, where we live, are are trying to look into a way to turn that into a different category, like charity, for example, to take the deduction. But IRS came Mm -hmm. out with some new regulations recently. Yeah, yeah, it's... uh uh, I, I call this uh, the big middle finger to the blue state. Uh, it's, <laughs> right. uh, you know, it's uh, it's ten thousand dollar cap, and 
that is not sufficient for a lot of individuals in, in places like New York, California, New Jersey, Connecticut, uh, you know, a, a lot of high tax states. And it's not just the income tax that's high in, in those states, it's property taxes as well. You know, my property taxes, and, and I'll be quite honest, you know, I live in a, a modest home. It's not nothing special. It's not a McMansion or anything like that. It's just a regular home in a regular neighborhood in New York. And our property taxes are basically a thousand dollars a month. So that means that I can't even deduct the full value of my property taxes before I even get to one dollar of my income taxes for the state. So it is it's not a good situation. And you hear people in uh, in other places say, or, or, you know, well, it's not fair. Why should the federal government subsidize, you know, these, these other states with the fact that they have high taxes? And, you know, there is an argument to be made there, but then you also get into arguments where states like New York, for instance, and I'd have to look at California off the top of my head. Um, I'm not sure, but New York, for instance, ends up putting in much more, even with this, uh, even with the salt deduction at full, like last year, New York ended up subsidizing the federal government far more than it got back, let's say, in its proportionate share of resources. So there's a good political debate there. But in terms of actionable information that your listeners need to know, it's simply that that $10,000 cap is a hard cap. As, as you mentioned, uh, there was some thought amongst a number of states. In fact, several states had actually created programs where individuals would be able to donate money into a state charity. And when that donation occurred, it would be for federal tax purposes, a quote unquote charitable donation, which is not subject to that $10,000 cap we have on the SALT deduction. But for state purposes, the state would grant those individuals a state income tax credit. So it would be like the best of both worlds, paying your taxes at the state level and then getting a charitable contribution at the federal level. The IRS cracked down on that. Uh, and frankly, that was not really a surprise. It was something we expected. They had hinted at that earlier in the year. And um, we'll continue to see other guidance. In fact, just yesterday, the Wall Street Journal uh, put out an article uh, on some uh, further guidance that the IRS had on this clarifying that this limit on the $10,000 SALT deduction um, and the fact that you cannot deduct amounts going to the charity uh, as a charitable contribution if you're getting a state tax credit for it on top doesn't apply to businesses. So business owners may have a little bit of a wiggle room here in and out. And so we could see states like California, New York, et cetera, create uh, opportunities for business owners to make that deduction. It would further create a... a uh, a dichotomy between individuals and business owners, so people who are not business owners and those who are, but that's essentially where our tax code has been trending lately. A couple of last questions for you, Jeff. Um, with the new sure. um, tax reform uh, that was signed in last year, uh, now that we have new rates and with the SALT and everything else, what, what are like maybe three or four key planning um, ideas that you would have in regards to retirement accounts. Um, do, do you think Roth conversions right now is probably more important than ever, given the low rates that we have? Or is yeah. there other strategies that that you might want to share? Sure. I mean, that would be a, a prime candidate, Roth, looking at Roth conversions. Now, interestingly enough, we've got lower rates for most people. Uh, even in high-tax states like California, a lot of people are going to end up paying less in tax than they did last year, uh, depending upon what study you want to subscribe to maybe 70 or 80 percent of people will have lower taxes this year and so you want to see what your individual tax situation looks like if it's going to be lower for the next 
uh, six or seven years through 2025, these might be opportune years to make those Roth conversions. Now, the flip side of that argument, though, is that one of the other changes made by the Tax Cut and Jobs Act is that the Roth conversion is now a permanent thing. It used to be where you could go back and kind of change your mind after the fact, up until October 15th of the year after you converted. That was eliminated. So now as soon as you make that Roth conversion, the income that's added to your tax return as part of that conversion is there no matter what. So Roth conversions for a lot of people today make more sense than ever before because of those lower rates. But at the same time, if you get it wrong, the price you pay will be much more substantial because you can't fix it like you could in previous years. So that's the first thing. Uh, the second thing is also looking at, you know, many uh, clients work with advisors like yourself who may manage assets for them and help them with that part of their uh, financial planning. And under the uh, Tax Cut and Jobs Act, the miscellaneous itemized deductions are eliminated through 2025 as well. So one of the things that individuals might want to do is take a closer look at how they're paying their financial planning fees or their investment advisory fees rather are they having it deducted directly from their account or are they paying it with outside funds um, and then of course looking at how people can take advantage of the recent changes so things like the new 199a deduction or your listeners may have heard that referred to as the small business deduction the 20 percent pass-through deduction it's going by a lot of names but it's one of the most powerful uh, tax deductions I've seen in recent years, and any one of your listeners who's got a uh, a Schedule C, a Schedule E, they're a partner in a partnership, they own an S corporation, or they run a sole proprietorship, this is a tremendous opportunity for them, but there's also, again, a tremendous cost of not understanding these rules, because during uh, the phase-out range where this deduction can get eliminated for some people, it's not, um, it's not an unlimited amount for everybody. Some people can see this deduction phased out, and the federal taxes alone in that phase-out range, which is about $100,000 for married couples filing a joint return, people see their tax bill go up over $47,000 just at the federal level. So take a state like yours, California, right? where you may tack on another 10% on top of that, we're talking about nearly $57,000 of taxes for making an extra $100,000. You're giving 60% of it away. At that point, just about anything you can do to lower your tax bill is a good thing. I mean, I'd rather give $10 to charity than $6 to the IRS, wouldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would. Yeah, and I, I think you're right, and I think a lot of small business owners don't understand with these phase-out periods, you have a, a temporary period where your effective rate is so much higher. So if you come up with more charity or self-employed uh, retirement plans or things of that sort, you may save a lot of tax money. Absolutely. Any, any one of your listeners who has not yet reached out and talk to a, you know, a financial planner or a tax advisor yet to see how they can take advantage of these changes is missing out on potentially a huge opportunity. You know, it's, uh, it's like that, um, uh, that old Spider-Man quote, right? With, uh, with great power comes great responsibility. It's kind of like the tax equivalent of that. We've got unbelievable power now to take advantage of changes, but you've got to be responsible for it yourself. You, you, no one else is going to take this action for you. If you don't reach out and contact a professional to help you, you're going to miss something. There's just too much going on. Look, that's why both of you are on the show together, right? Because there's too much for any one person to know about everything. 
So your listeners, if they, you know, if I can impress upon them one thing, it would be contact someone today uh, and make sure that you look at this because it is the most unprecedented changes to the tax code in 30 years. And you don't want to left, be left holding the bag knowing that you could have done something to save yourself money. The IRS is not going to knock on your door five years and say, you know, missed out on this strategy. Here's some extra money back. It's just gone forever. Uh, we're talking to Jeff Levine. Hey, Jeff, where can um, people get more information on you, read some of your stuff, and, and get educated? Yeah, sure. So I uh, I am uh, the Director of Advisor Education over at Kipsis.com, so they can go there and read articles. It's uh, www.kipces.com. I also am the CEO and Director of Financial Planning for Blueprint Wealth Alliance, a uh, registered investment advisor out in New York, and they can simply go to our website, which is designmyretirement.com. So uh, that's awesome. I appreciate that, guys. And uh, again, to your listeners, just please do me that favor. Don't don't waste that tax money. <laughs> don't waste that tax money. Um, Alan, did you know that Jeff was um, forty under forty by Investment News? There you go. Yeah. I was forty for, under forty by, uh, on the San, San, San Diego Business Journal. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, still, that's still decent. It's not it's even not, a, this, not, not even national. Close. Not even not even <laughs> kindred <close>. spirit. Oh, <laughs> uh, all right. We got to take a break, Jeff. Thanks so much for joining us. If there's someone, no, hang on, don't skip ahead. I'm going to keep this short. If there's someone you'd like to hear on Your Money, Your Wealth, if you've got any other suggestions that would make the podcast even better for you, or if you've got money questions, we want to hear from you. Call 888-994-6257 or email your comments, suggestions, and money questions to info at purefinancial.com. See? Short and sweet. Told you. We got an email from Ian. He's in San Diego. Yep. His question is, um, if... I increase my 401k contributions. Will that enable me to have less taxes taken out and more take home without having to owe more at the end of the year? What say you, Alan? That's well, I, I think Ian, you might be a little confused. So so when you add more to your 401k, you will have less taxes withheld, but then you have to have money withheld for the money you're putting into the 401k. So your take home pay will go down even though your taxes are going down because you're putting some of your otherwise salary into a 401k. But here's what I would look at, Ian, is that if you contribute $100 into your 401k plan per month, it's not going to feel like $100. You know what I mean? Your your take-home pay is going to be reduced, but it's not a dollar-for-dollar reduction of what you're going to put in the 401k plan. Yes, I completely agree with that. So, so let's say you're in a 25% tax bracket, for example. So your taxes are going to go down $25,000, but you do have to put $100 into the 401k. So your net pay is going to be $75 less because you got money going to the 401k, but it's not the 100. When you add the 100 to the 401k, you, you get a tax break. So the idea here is is with a lower salary because you're deferring some of your salary to 401k, your taxes will be lower. That's why less taxes are withheld. So all things being equal, you should be in the same spot as you would have been come April 15th. So if you want to change your withholdings and say, hey, now I'm contributing X to the 401k plan, you potentially could change your withholdings a little bit and say, you know, maybe you can increase your take home, uh, but it's not going to be more than what you before you contributed to the plan. Yeah, your your net take home pay is going to be, be less because you're saving money. Correct. You're 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 putting some of your salary into four hundred one k. So in other words, you're not receiving it currently. Your taxes will go down, but your net pay will go down as well. 
But yes, uh, if if he's thinking about man, I'm going to owe quite a bit at the end of the year. What I'm saying is not necessarily because that. No, no, no. What his question was, he's like, without um, owing more at the end of the year, if he feels that you're going to owe more at the end of the year, then yes, you want to contribute to the 401k plan because that's going to reduce your overall taxable income. But that being said, just know that your take-home pay is going to be less. Yeah, so all I'm saying is you're withholding. They're trying to match what your future tax is going to be. So the fact that you have a lower taxes going in, you're also going to pay, you have less income that you're paying tax on. So it should work out. I will give one caution, though, to our listeners, and and many experts are cautioning people that the withholding tables that changed in February may be not withholding enough, and some of us may be surprised on April 15th A lot of you are going to owe a lot of taxes. Potentially, I don't know a lot, but but if you're you, if you're expecting a five hundred dollar refund, it may not be there. Nope. Um, yeah, there goes your vacation. There goes Christmas. Uh, email from Susan in Escondido, Alan. Okay. I am currently sixty one, and my husband is sixty two. My husband is planning on waiting to take his Social Security at age seventy. I have worked myself enough to receive a small amount of Social Security. I'm trying to decide. If it is worth turning on my Social Security at age 62 instead of waiting until I turn full retirement age, when my husband files at age 70, I believe I can then receive spousal benefits, which would be a combination of my current reduced amount plus the difference between my normal retirement age and the spousal amount. Is this correct? I know I will receive a reduction on my Social Security if I start at 62, but will the spousal part of my Social Security be reduced also? Sorry if this sounds confusing, but Social Security is so confusing. (laughs) It is confusing. (laughs) Susan, great question. She's been doing some homework here, Alan. She has. She must have been reading Cutlikoff's book. Could be. (laughs) So uh, I will say, I'll, I'll let you... Do the meat, but I'll I'll do a couple things, and and that is so you can uh, take your your spousal uh, benefit uh, as as long as your spouse is taking their benefits. So that's the qualifying part. So I'm I'm assuming that when you're saying your husband's going to file at age seventy, uh, then you'll be of the age where you can actually be taking Social Security, and and so yeah, you can take it as early as sixty two, but you do we will receive reduced benefits. Great answer. <laughs> that was a really good answer. It was. It was perfect. Because I didn't, I didn't say anything that you said would be wrong. I didn't really answer the question. I know but, you did. But I, I set it up for you. <laughs> yeah. All right. I think here, Susan, let me help you out here. So she wants to take her benefit at age 62. Her husband's pushing his benefit off to age 70. And I'm assuming that when he turns age 70, you're going to be at full retirement age. So you take your benefit at age 62. How it works, the system works like this. You have your own benefit on your record, and then there's going to be a separate benefit, which is called the spousal benefit. If your husband was already collecting his benefit, you could claim the spousal benefit. You could claim your benefit or the spousal benefit at age 62. It would be a deemed benefit. You wouldn't be able to switch back and forth if you took it at 62. But I think where her caveat falls is that she can't claim the spousal because her husband is pushing his benefit off until age 70. Yeah. So she is deciding to take her benefit early at age 62 at a reduced benefit. Then when her husband claims his benefit, the spousal will come on because I'm assuming the spousal benefit is higher than her own benefit. Yeah, which is what she said. With that being said, there's two benefits. Her benefit 
plus the spousal benefit. The spousal benefit is an additional benefit that will go on top of her own benefit on her own record to sure her up to make it half of her husband's benefit at his full retirement age. Does that make sense? Yes, I think so. Okay. But she's claiming her benefit at age 62, so her benefit on her own record is going to be reduced. The spousal benefit will not be reduced because she is claiming the spousal benefit at full retirement age because she didn't have a choice. She couldn't do it because her husband hadn't claimed yet until his age 70. So yes, it will be a reduced benefit, but not as reduced if the husband was already claiming his benefit. Now, what if the husband's already 70? And claiming? And, and claiming. And she's 62? Yes. Then it would be, um, she would receive 33% of his um, full retirement age benefit. So in that case, there would be a reduction correct. on the spousal. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Got All it. right. Next week, Cupert from Abandoned Cubicle. This is going to be awesome. It is. He talks about how he's uh, using vacation rental and totally going to leverage himself up to the hilt. In, in three years, he will be broke. Um, subscribe to our podcast and listen to uh, yourmoneyyourwealth.com. Wow. Is that an opinion or a fact? That would, uh, well, I don't know. I would say an opinion. But. <laughs> yeah, I would say that's an opinion. You know, when you start seeing people flipping homes, yeah, right, that have no experience flipping homes, and people retiring at age 46 with a bunch of leverage that yes. doesn't necessarily have any experience in real estate, it's, you know what? It reminds me eerie of 2008. It, it can be risky. All right. We'll see you next week, folks. The show's called Your Money or Wealth. Special thanks to today's guest, Jeffrey Levine. Find links to Jeff's articles in the show notes for this episode at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. That's also where you can subscribe to the podcast, or you can find us on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. Now, if you've got a burning money question for Joe and Big Al to answer live on Your Money, Your Wealth, email it to us, info at purefinancial.com, or call 888-994-6257. Listen next time for more Your Money, Your Wealth, presented by Pure Financial Advisors. For your free financial assessment, just visit purefinancial.com. Here comes the disclosure. Pure Financial Advisors is a registered investment advisor. This show does not intend to provide personalized investment advice through this broadcast and does not represent that the securities or services discussed are suitable for any investor. Investors are advised not to rely on any information contained in the broadcast in the process of making a full and informed investment decision. Oh, that's a tongue twister. See you next week.